Hello and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. I want to thank our audience just right off the top because I think this episode's going up a little bit uh, later than usual. I just want to promise the Open Floor Globe out there I had really good intentions because let's be honest, this was a week of devastating revelations for Andrew Sharp. I mean, across the basketball universe, we saw greatness from James Harden. We saw greatness from Kevin Durant. We saw greatness from Ben Simmons. We saw one quarter of greatness uh, from Jamal Murray, but you get my point. Things were really kind of not going your way. And I tried to line up somebody who I thought could help you spin just this damaging uh, series of allegations against your basketball opportunities. Uh, I contacted the Attorney General, Bill Barr. He was <laughs> he was busy Thursday, I guess, taking care of a similar situation. Somebody else who was also in a lot of hot water and, and having a hard time explaining himself. He said he would get back to me this morning, Friday morning, but he just bailed on us, Andrew. So I don't know. I guess you're left to speak for yourself. You know what, man? It's Friday afternoon. We are recording this late in part because we wanted to wait for Thursday night's games because Thursday night's games were a lot more interesting than Wednesday night's games, yada, yada, yada. But now it's no, Friday afternoon. it was afternoon. the Bill Barr thing. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were waiting on Bill Barr. Sorry, everyone. Um, I just went for a long run. There's about to be a great spring thunderstorm in D.C. I'm in a fantastic mood, and I'm ready to talk about <laughs> basketball. I'm not taking any of this week's results personally or as a slight on me or my professional opinions. I think we, I'm not going to let you take a victory lap either since we're literally a week into Man, the playoffs. We this have to is wait killing and see where me. we are with James Harden. Th but this is killing me. I'm trying to do my best Patrick Beverly over here, just needling you, getting up in your body, being annoying, and you're just trying to take the Kevin Durant approach of, oh, you're you're bigger than the mano a mano battle. Is that it? I am. I am. I'm feeling great right now. I'm Andrew Sharp, okay? Y'all know who I am. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's dive in, though, because I do want to talk about KD. I think this this was a really interesting week for him. You wrote about his game last night in L.A. You were at the game last night in L.A. So let's start with a question from Brandon in L.A. He says, The biggest thing that has happened during the first round of the playoffs is that Kevin Durant has unequivocally become the best player on the planet. The coverage of Durant this week is the exact same way you guys used to cover LeBron over the past six or seven years where LeBron could drop 37-7 and seven and somehow still get ripped to shreds for not doing enough and not having a great game. The only sports figures in my life to get heat like Kevin Durant has this week are LeBron, Peyton Manning, Alex Rodriguez, and Aaron Rodgers. And what do all of those players have in common? So, Ben, what's your response to, to that and what we've seen from Durant this week? Uh, I'm not totally sure I buy into that. I mean, he did not play well in Game 2. He did not approach the game properly in Game 2. He didn't take questions after Game 2, and then he went on a little bit of a mini rant after Game 2. So I think he earned a lot of the coverage or the negative coverage, the criticism, the question marks um, that surfaced following you know historic playoff collapse. I don't think that was a case of everyone just piling on, uh, you know, giving him the LeBron treatment necessarily. Mm -hmm. That being said, I was really, really, really impressed with with his Game 3 performance. 
not just the scoring. He had 38 points in three quarters, made it look effortless. I mean, I think he told everybody that he could just shoot over Patrick Beverly in a one-on-one situation anytime he wanted. Uh, and then he went out and did it. I mean, he had his first six shots. I mean, basically didn't miss from the field all night, got everything he wanted. Uh, and it just sort of looked like a pregame routine out there for him. Uh, I mean, yeah. he's banging in turnarounds. I mean, it didn't really matter who they put on him. Uh, he was in that kind of zone. But what really impressed me about his performance, it wasn't the scoring. Because he had this whole idea that like it's not just him versus Beverly. It's almost like the artist versus the craft, right? Where he's trying to show that he has this like higher philosophical calling towards basketball about playing the right way, being part of a system and all that. And I think people mm-hmm. were using that to try to uh, drive a wedge between him and Kerr, right? It's like, oh, they're fighting over shots. He has a difference of opinion uh, about uh, how, what his role should be. And I think Kerr was just saying, look, we want him as actively involved as possible because he's incredible and he wasn't involved enough in game two. And Durant was like, look, I don't adjust my entire basketball worldview off of one game. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. I think he made his case uh, about his approach, about his philosophy very, very well in game three because it wasn't just the scoring. His passing was unbelievable. He picked them apart. Every time he was doubled, he was finding guys for dunks and layups. His defense was very impressive. Obviously, the block shot on Shea was probably leading all the highlight reels this morning. So, I thought it was just a complete domination. This was the kind of performance that I love because he showed every nuance to his game. He showed that he was the most complete player in the league. He showed that, you know, his weaknesses, uh, I mean, there aren't very many and they're not glaring, right? He can basically do it all. He played point guard. He was almost playing back to the basket as a, a center in the post at times. He was guarding, you know, a bunch of different people. He was hitting three pointers. He was doing it all. But I think that he is still leaving people lacking because of the team context, because he's doing it all and they're winning by 30. And there's not a drama factor that some people are seeking. And I, I think that winds up leaving him back at square one, where his you know supporters, you know the, the three of us who are left, are saying, look, this guy is a transcendent basketball talent, a generational guy. We've never seen someone who can do everything that he can do. But his critics are saying, well, like, yeah, but he, he's doing it against overmatched competition. Of course, nobody can guard him because he's got all the good players on his team. Why mm-hmm. should we be impressed by that? And and to me, that's really where the nature of the Kevin Durant debate is. And I don't know if that's totally comparable to the LeBron situation the emailer raised. Well, so one question I have for you just at the end there. I mean, wouldn't you agree that that's objectively true that he is doing this against an overmatched Clippers team in game three. And, and that does sort of remove some of the drama from that performance. I mean, I was viewing it almost like it was an art exhibit, right? Like it didn't really matter who the other people were on the court. It was just like, here, here's this like two hour performance of a, a one man yeah. act. Right. And so, um, by the end of it, you know, by the, the midway through the third quarter and the fourth quarter, you know, you start to realize like, yeah, I mean, he could probably do this every single night if he wanted to. And maybe that's cause for some uh, criticism, like the fact that uh, he's not as aggressive or as assertive offensively as maybe he could be uh, night in and night out. Maybe that would wear him down or maybe he's just pacing himself. I'm not sure there. Uh, but to me, it doesn't detract because when I'm watching him do that, all I'm thinking is going through the mental uh, memory bank and saying how many guys have ever been able to do all of these different skills that he's doing. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the competition is overmatched because he's so great. 
Yeah, I think you're letting him off. Well, not not letting him off. I think you're telling roughly half the story with this. And um, I agree with you to a point. And I think that you can appreciate him and appreciate this Golden State team in a dispassionate context where you stand back and say, wow, this is about as technically sound a basketball player and a basketball team as we have ever seen in the history of the NBA. I can also say that it would have been more fun to watch them do that against a team that actually had a chance. And that's where... But look, Andrew, I do, we've been waiting I, for five years for these teams to catch up. You know what I mean? Like, when, when are they coming? Like, And that was the thing that Kerr and, and Steph Curry were talking about after their postgame performance of like... There was really no panic factor after game two because they've been through a lot. They've seen a lot during this time period, and, and they yeah. locked in no. defensively. And, and let me tell you something. They deserve a lot of credit for being mentally tough through all of this because I think it's easy to look at their talent and say they are just going to be able to blow teams off the court regardless, and this doesn't matter, and all of this is a formality, when in reality it's a little bit harder to do that night after night after night with teams coming for you, with the whole world on the outside poking holes in everything you do and rooting for you to fail, basically. And it's hard to stay together and stay locked in and be able to go execute as routinely as they do. I mean, basically, the Warriors, they will have a little flare-up if we look at strictly this season. They will dominate and blow teams off the floor like 80% of the time, and then the second they lose, everyone starts to compare them to the 0-4 Lakers and wonder when it's all going to come crumbling down in in this postseason. And so that's a tough spot to be, and they handle it really well more often than not and they do deserve credit for that um i'm just saying why are we holding the the competition level against them if you know they've changed the entire sport no one is holding it against them i'm just saying you're holding against him (laughs) no i'm not I'm, i'm really not i think that there's a part of this story that is a little frustrating sometimes because kevin durant just played the single best game of the playoffs And it was over by the middle of the second quarter. And it wasn't interesting. And it wasn't that fun to watch unless you were just sitting there appreciating his individual brilliance in the middle of a 20 and 30 point game. And that's a little bit, it's a little bit frustrating. That's all it is. It's not a, it's not a bad thing or a good thing. I just think people should get on his level and appreciate it. You know, it it doesn't have to be like an MMA fight. You can go to an art museum and just be (laughs) high-minded and enjoy the Kevin Durant show. Look, this is what I mean about the TV ratings for the playoffs being in jeopardy, Andrew. I'm a little bit nervous. I mean, the Warriors factor is one of them. They drive a lot of interest, but I think a lot of people are are tuning out, you know, like the, the comeback game the other night. I think people... Uh, tuned out at halftime and came, woke up and was like, what the heck just happened? And I, I don't think that they were like, wow, we've got to stick around to the end for game three. Something crazy could happen. As soon as they got up 20, I think they were like, well, KD showed up. I'm out. You know, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> yeah. and, but I mean, one thing that Steph said is like, they're changing the entire sport, right? Everyone's starting to chase them. They're they're trying to play the Warriors way. They're trying to mimic uh, the Warriors approach on things. Some of even the gimmick defenses, like uh, what uh, the Clippers were playing by try- trying to so hard to take away the three-pointer and staying on top of people rather than just uh-huh. playing straight-up defense. It's all a reaction to the Warriors. And I guess I could understand uh, you know, people being a little bit shaken up by the Warriors effect like in year one or year two, but this has gone on for so long that 
if the gap between Golden State and everybody else is still this wide, um, I think they deserve less resentment than ever for that because everyone I mean, else has look, had time I'm to not, catch no, up. No, no, no. <laughs> I've, I've put up with this for 10 minutes. Get out of here, okay? The Warriors are the most stacked team of all time. You can't pin this on the rest of the league for not catching up. I mean, what is Houston going to do? Go trade for Paul George or go trade well, for... like Houston's going to push only... them, by the way. Houston's going to give them a good series. Okay. They, they're playing okay. incredible basketball. But, I, you know, you look around, everybody... I mean, we've gone through the mistakes that different GMs have made. They've had their time. And the fact that Golden State hasn't come back to earth really at all in the playoff format is incredible. Yeah, and it speaks to how talented they are. Um, and, and it does also speak to how mentally tough they've been because they deserve a lot of credit for that as well. I mean, like the second half against the Rockets in Game 7 last year, a lot of teams would have folded and the Warriors didn't even blink, which is really, really impressive and something that's easy to take for granted. So credit to them. The Durant thing, I think, is a separate conversation and my reaction to the last five days with him is that, number one, I was reminded how much I love listening to him talk about basketball. And I've talked to him on and off the record a couple times about basketball. And he's just a whole different person when he's focused on the game and focused less on the like meta narrative that surrounds him and his criticism and this and that. I think when he's talking basketball, he's one of the most insightful players we have. And he is expansive and um, and just great to listen to. Having said that, <laughs> I think a lot of people heard him explain his game too and just kind of fell all over themselves to say, this is a basketball genius. Like, now I get it. And it, it was everyone else who was wrong and all the criticism was off base and KD was just playing his game, which I don't really agree with at all. And I, I think KD had a fancy way of explaining himself and basically doubling down on his approach in Game 2, which is misleading because really, if you watched Game 2, and we were recording the podcast, so I had to go back and watch like the fourth quarter of that Clippers comeback, but if you watch him in that game, he was really passive and not engaged whatsoever. Yeah. And no, that's it's a built-in excuse. It's a built-in excuse when he says, "Hey, I'm a team player. I just do, you know, if the if Kerr calls plays for me, that's when I do it. Otherwise, I'm just going to do whatever they want." I mean, that's a built-in excuse. It's right. popped up before too. It happened with USA Basketball, uh, you know, during their most recent run of the gold medal, where you know, until the final game, he was just standing on the uh, on the wing doing nothing. You know, play after play after play after play, and. I think he does want to have it both ways a little bit. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I mean. I understand where he's coming from, wanting to be seen as the ultimate smart player who's just out there making the cerebral play, doing the right thing, not worried about winning any one-on-one -on -one matchup. That's fine. And I think in a lot of cases, that's true to who he yeah. is as a it basketball was, player. It was cold, too, though. I mean, the idea that he didn't have to go Kobe and just, like, you know, take 35 shots to punk Patrick Beverly and, you know, show him who's boss. And he could just do it in, like, this very, like, Marlowe from the wire Ultra type way. efficient way. way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, he's great. There's no question about it. I just think there have also been some times this season where you look up and he is completely disengaged from what the Warriors are trying to do. And, um, and that's a real thing. That's not people on the outside who don't understand basketball, who are completely misreading his game. Like, KD has been in a weird place this season. And 
The other yeah. thing I was going to say no, is that you. it was really cool to see him come back and just go scorched earth and remind people not only that he is Kevin Durant, but remind people why we love his game. And honestly, my takeaway from game three against the Clippers is that like I can't wait to watch him do this in his own context on his own team where there's less weirdness surrounding every single thing that happens and where it is going to matter more when he has to carry more responsibility and the tests are tougher and the, the playing field is more level. It will be 10 times cooler to watch KD go out and go for a light 38 on like 15 of 20 shooting where he is easily the best player on the floor and maybe the best player in the league. Yeah, so two thoughts. First of all, I do think there was a distortion effect, though, all season long when, like, if he did have a passive game or a weird stretch or he barks at Draymond or whatever, that gets blown up into this huge thing, and it overlooks the consistency factor that really was there for a lot of the season from him individually, and especially late in the season where they're just rolling. And I think he made the point, like, other than, you know, basically, you know, six minutes of a bad game, too, they've been completely locked in for, like, the last four or five weeks. And I agree with that 100%. Like, that's really where their game, their collective team game and his role within that team game has been. And so uh, maybe that is what the emailer's point was, is like the nitpicking that, you know, tends to follow LeBron, whatever the the weakness or perceived weakness might be, that's where everybody latches onto. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe he has elevated in that method. Uh, The second thing I was, oh, go ahead. Um, no, I, I think that's a good point. I think that's a, f- and honestly, the emailer is right that now as the scrutiny shifts to KD, that is kind of a credit to where he is in the basketball world and how we all kind of view him because I think the expectations are ridiculously unfair in certain cases. And that's, that comes with the territory of being the best player in the world. I also think that there's more to the story with Durant specifically. And like he talks about after the game last night, he talked about this is the first time all season that people want to focus on my actual basketball play and not what I'm going to do in the future. And that hasn't happened in a long time. I like that. He says that's the way it should be. I think Katie has been fighting that battle all year long and There are two things working against KD when he says, why can't we all just focus on basketball? And then the first one is unfair, but it's that his free agency and how it affects the team is really the only thing that is interesting about this Warriors team at this point. And so, of course, people are going to focus on rational amounts of scrutiny. He's handled it poorly. Yeah, I mean, that's made it worse. It's it's affecting the actual basketball, and it has for yeah. several months. I, I don't know and- if I'd go there, though. I mean, on a locked-in night-to-night basis, there are flare-ups. There are moments. Every, every time something goes wrong, people want to point to that. But, I mean, this is not a team in disarray because their star player is going to be a free agent. I mean, there's there's no way you can make that case. Yeah, see, I don't know. I think that there are real issues there. I mean, I think that, you know, the... Durant and Kerr have not been on the same page for most of this year. Would you not? Would you disagree with that? Look, he just chafes at it. I think he's heard. I mean, this is my personal take from you know a thousand miles away. I think he's just heard enough of Kerr's mantra. You know, everybody. Yeah. You know, I, I wear on you, right? You wear on me. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that, but I don't. 
I mean, well, look, he's look, locked in. He's we wear playing. on each other, but at the end of the day, we both are still in each other's corners yeah. and will defend each other. I, I don't I, know if that's true for Durant. And I Kirk. think I think it is. I think you're going too far with that. Um, eh, one that's thing, not not what I've heard, but well, yeah. then why is he why does he show up and play the right way? You know what I mean? Like why does he play? Why does he keep moving off the ball? Why does he use the screens? Why does he not? You know, well, go into isolation mode in game two. But he bounces back in game three and plays. You know, picture perfect warriors basketball right now he's bringing the ball up as a point guard <clears throat> he's making the extra pass he's trying to keep Andre Iguodala involved in the corner he's feeding Bogut for dunks I mean look he's when he's playing well and he has been playing well a lot over the course of the last two months and this is what I mean about the distortion effect right so he had 12 bad minutes and that's all you're going to talk about for however long to and you're going to extrapolate that as some huge civil war between him and Steve Kerr when in reality if you zoom out and say, how has the last two months gone? They've played like world beaters. They you know, blew teams out of the water for the last two weeks of the regular season. Uh, they've run the Clippers off the court three straight games. They got bored in the second half of one of them. Um, you know, And that's, that's the more accurate story. And Kevin's been in the middle of all of it. And I think he's been a very consistent leadership force for that team. But that doesn't make for great radio, and I understand that. And that doesn't make for planting seeds to, like, force him out of Golden State, which is, you know, clearly your ultimate goal here and a lot of people's ultimate goal here. And so you just keep kind of trying to drive these wedges between (laughs) him and whoever you can. No, 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 no. It's not me doing anything. First of all, they finished the season 16-9, and okay? That's not exactly blowing people off the floor, world beaters, Andrew, or whatever you want to say. they had a six-game winning streak where they beat everybody by an average of 20 points. When they locked in, you know, this mm-hmm. mid-March to the end of the season, they killed everyone. You know, I was at I'm a, just a, saying, multiple you're games. distorting things. It wasn't things. even close. If, no, you're totally distorting things. If you act like this season has been mostly great and anybody who is Andrew, looking at the, the roster and they're saying the number one seed. they're the number one seed in the western conference they have the best point uh-huh. differential in the western conference they didn't run up their guys minutes they didn't even play their best lineup for the whole season kevin came through completely healthy no one else has had major health issues here over the last month they're fine. <laughs> they no, I don't. I don't disagree that they're fine. I think you're crazy <laughs> if you're if you're acting like there aren't also real issues. I think they're fine because they're the most talented team we have ever seen in the NBA, and all the pieces fit together. Like the the combination of their ca- talent and fit is unprecedented and something we probably won't see for the next okay 30 so or lay it out years. what are their big issues if i'm so crazy and that they're just battling all this horrible baggage what is it what's the issue put, well, put it out I point blank kevin durant hates steve kerr is what you're saying well like kevin durant hates steph curry i mean who, who what are the issues at halftime last night kevin durant has 27 points and he's asked about the way he's playing and he tells kareth burke he says, nothing's different. I think coach just drew up more plays for me. Like, I don't know, man. Steve Kerr doesn't really run that many plays in the first place. Well, I think the they thing did. that changed is, is Durant was more engaged last night. The, and first they did. Three, the first three minutes, they ran like five straight plays for him, and he had five straight jumpers. I mean, I, I think— They did. They, there's two—I mean, they, look, there's a passive-aggressive tint to what he said there. There's no question. I think he probably would prefer to have a larger role in the offense, as would any superstar as gifted as him, and it's really a tough balance between him and Curry. 
That to mm-hmm. me is factually accurate and maybe a little bit of a dig, but it's not evidence of a civil it's war. It's a little bit of a dig and it's consistent with the way Durant has been approaching Kerr discussions all year long. And this, as Kerr goes out of his way, anytime anyone asks him about Steph Curry or about the team, about the way the Warriors are playing, Kerr will always find a way to work in Kevin Durant is the most unstoppable scorer on the planet. Kevin well, Durant is the best player in the league. That's I sat his job. there and asked Kerr about Curry's value, and he shifted the conversation to talk about Durant. He's been going out of his way for months to talk about how much he loves KD. Well, look, and it's, a, it's a year-long it, uh, reputation repair from how they uh, you know, mishandled the championship title parade. Okay, you remember that. <laughs> They're taking all these shots at Kevin Durant. Oh, I told you I right when so. that happened, he should have considered leaving. That was completely ridiculous how they, uh, they, pinned, they yeah. pitted him against Steph Curry. But I, I think a lot of what Steve Kerr is saying... Uh, of course, it's just him doing his job, but I think it's also true. I think there's a huge respect factor uh, fr- from coach to player, and I think he's also probably searching to find the perfect connection, and he just wants Kevin Durant to know, hey, look, if you're going to leave this summer, you were always valued. Yeah, um, we'll see. I-, I do hope that KD can get rolling. By the way, Steph Curry on last night's game and his explanation was people getting out of their feelings and just playing basketball, everybody, which I think speaks to some internal dysfunction, as does the closed-door players-only meeting five days into the playoffs for the Warriors after Game 2. I think there's some real things going on, and, uh, and I, I, that's part of what makes the whole story really interesting is, you know, there may be real issues that would, would fracture lesser teams, and the Warriors might just be so good that it won't matter whatsoever. And they're going to go blow out the Rockets. They're going to go blow through the Western Conference Finals and whoever they face there and dominate in the NBA Finals. That seems like maybe the most plausible scenario for this team. Yeah. Um, um, you're just painting a scenario kind of remarkable. where... KD is danged if he does, danged if he doesn't, right? I mean, if he plays so well and they're clicking, it's boring for you. If it doesn't go well, it's well, not it's me. his. Stop making this about me. It's boring for everybody, okay? And that's and it's true that it's a it's a crappy situation for Durant, and it's unfair. Okay. So it is I, unfair. I as long as you agree, it's unfair. You can have whatever opinion you want. Yeah, no, it's it's and it's not just my opinion. Um, but we'll see because I do hope for Durant's sake that he's able to keep this rolling and go out on a high note because I don't think anybody, like Warriors fans, have been kind of angsty toward Durant all season long. But if that's the level of engagement that Durant is going to bring to the table every night and he's going to be the best player in the league for the next two months, nobody on the way out, and, and he can leave this summer. Nobody's going to hold this season against him. And um, and I think that's that's the outcome that we should all be rooting for. Yeah, I think he might have gotten a taste in game two of what happens if they don't win, right? And that's really ugly for him and his reputation uh, and everything else, right? It's like LeBron's out of the picture. Now it's supposed to be your turn. You're blowing 30-point leads. Like, you know, everyone will be coming for Kevin Durant really quickly. Like I said, I mean, he's kind of screwed either way. If they play well, it's boring. It's unfair. If they don't play well, well, it's his personality ruining everything. Um, yeah. I just think that's unfortunate. And, you know, I, you said it right. It's unfair. couple last thoughts. Yeah. I like that his motivation 
after game three, the way he was expressing it was internal uh, motivation, not external motivation. James Harden had a similar comment after his game two performance where basically he said, look, I've been doing this on this level for five years. Nothing that anyone else can say um, can really you know, get me to take my game to a higher level or give me fuel. That is the mm-hmm. right mentality when you're on these guys' levels. Here's the thing, though. I believe James Harden when he said it. I still don't totally believe Kevin Durant when he says it, right? Because we know uh, he's probably leaving that press conference and immediately going to Instagram and looking at every single person's comments about how he played and you know liking and, and faving people, calling him a snake and everything else. As long as he stays focused on answering only to himself, uh, he will be the finals MVP and they will win a third straight title. Uh, and by the way, he is his own worst cool. enemy. If if he is responding to the outside noise, that's fine with me because he responded with one of the best games I've seen him play in the last ten years. So whatever it took to get him to that place, yeah. But it, the, the end result was worth it. But the problem is that's where he gets into the inconsistency factor, right? Like uh, responding to the outside stuff is why he goes and stands in the corner and why he snipes at Steve Kerr. Right? See, I think there he's responding to inside stuff. <laughs> I don't think that's about the outside world, but we just disagree on that. Um, and the last thing I would say on Durant is that it is an unfair bargain, but I think that oftentimes when we have these discussions, you kind of let him off the hook, and you're not the only one. There are a lot of people who do, and it's a little bit infantilizing to say that he has had no role in the way the last few years have played out, and including the way this season has played out. He hasn't addressed any of the free agency stuff, and it's affected his relationship with teammates. I don't know what you're talking about. I just held him accountable for not handling the free agency thing properly. If you look at the biggest, mm -hmm. you know, blow-ups moment, it was because Draymond didn't pass him the ball when Draymond should have passed him the ball earlier in the season. That clearly, you know, was was something that was serious that they had to get through. Um, But... Like there's a difference between holding him accountable for his missteps or even for his poor treatment of media members and saying that like he is this grenade that's going to go off in the Warriors locker room. I think that no, is, no, no. it's the distortion I, effect. Right. I, I don't think he's any kind of grenade, but I don't think it's unfair to say that Durant has not looked comfortable with himself and with his teammates for about a year now. And it is. You know, he looked pretty a, comfortable draining 40 over LeBron sure in the did. finals. He sure did. <laughs> he looked pretty comfortable draining 38 last night. I mean, look at his numbers consistency wise. I mean, he's. Again, it's a wild you, card, though. Th- this That's is where you're only... going. In, this is where you're going to that distortion effect of okay, like how how bad does he really look? How uncomfortable does he really look on a night to night basis? Because there's a heck of a lot of games where you're not staying up past the second quarter because they're up by 30. Yeah. Um, well, we will see how it all ends with hey, Kevin Durant and Golden State. You mentioned his comments after uh, game two about kind of breaking it all down and like, you know, taking mm-hmm. people inside basketball. Um, I thought like the big takeaway from that, you know, everyone was gushing over it and it was pretty interesting to hear him just how his mind works, A, then B, then C, kind of going through the logical process of like how he approaches the defenses. But my yeah. bigger takeaway was like less serious. It was just, I mean, it shows you how often high-level superstars just dumb everything down for the media and for fans, right? Like, <laughs> totally. <laughs> any of these guys could talk like that, 
you know, that's how they talk at team meetings. That's how, uh, you know, it's clear, like that phrase top locking or whatever they, the Warriors were calling the Clippers defense was like became like the buzzword, like, you know, Kerr, all these other different players were all bringing up within 24 hours after that game, too. Uh, yeah, you know, kind of trying to shine the light on like the, the quote unquote gimmick of the Clippers defense. So clearly they had like, you know, a big meeting where like this is like the point of emphasis that we're all going to talk about. Right. That happens every day, all the time. And the fact that like we don't hear players speak like that more, I think it says a lot more about us or the respect that they might have for us as media members or the public uh, than it does about their basketball intelligence. Like Kevin came across very, very smart as he was laying all those things out. It is always great to see him do that. Uh, yeah. I, I just don't know how unusual that was. Well, and do you agree with me that he wasn't necessarily introducing anything groundbreaking into the media? Like, I, I, I feel like all he really did was explain in detail exactly the way he played in game two and say he wouldn't have done anything differently. Uh, I mean, I don't know. What do you mean by groundbreaking? Like some strategic wrinkle that we've never heard of before? Like, Well, I just saw like literally like 25 people quote tweet that and say, wow, what a basketball genius. And it was like, I don't, I didn't find it that insightful or I, I don't know. He, he didn't really teach me anything about game two beyond saying like, these are the decisions I made and I would not do anything differently. I thought the most interesting thing he said was about the officiating and the way guys who are 6'10 tend to be officiated when they're guarded by little pipsqueaks like Patrick Beverly and Chris Paul. Um, I thought that was actually the one point where it was like, oh, wow, uh, more people should know about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was just really jargon heavy, which is what got everyone excited because it's like, hey, now I'm part of this cool club, you know? And again, I think it says more <laughs> about the listener than it does necessarily about the player. But his thought process, I mean, it shows you like, even though he has this reputation for mood swings, being moody, um, you know, unpredictable, sensitive and all that, like there is a very cold logic behind like every single thing he was doing. And that really is yeah. where the LeBron comparison could come in because everyone's always saying like LeBron's brain is like a computer. He's calculating, you know, what's the best possible play for himself or his teammates. I mean, Durant doesn't quite have that same playmaking uh, ability at least with the you know the sheer passing ability but mm -hmm. he is making decisions at a very similar if not the same level uh, as LeBron and the results uh, are incredibly efficient and again when he's locked in yeah absolutely I agree with that 100% he's one of the smartest players in the last 25 years and I would add that when you get KD talking about stuff that isn't related to him and he's just talking basketball, that's when the best version of Kevin Durant comes to the surface and he is funny and smart and uh, and that's the that's the version of KD that I hope we get wherever he ends up next is like KD just the basketball nerd because I think that's a real thing and um he's just been kind of lost in this weird crappy narrative where he can't really win in golden state and so well, i'm really be, excited for katie the a basketball part, player and katie the basketball nerd one be, day be one a day part we'll of the change that you want to see andrew you know you can help with this you know you can help well, me you can help me over here hyping up KB, uh, katie's I'm basketball not help iq you can help me uh, hype up his consistency okay i'm going to be objective throughout this process there are things that are great about katie and there are 
things that have been a little bit frustrating over the last couple of years. But okay, stick to the unfair comparisons. That's fine. I understand. Let, let's keep it moving. Ben, today's show is brought to us by Quip. And let me tell you, Ben, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. Yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush that will help us do it properly. It was created by dentists and designers alike. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. It starts with sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on your sensitive gums because people brush too hard and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. And Quip also has a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. So basically, it's like a toothbrush for idiots, makes it very easy, removes any kind of decision-making you have to make. And uh, it's, it's a helping guide that will give you a full clean every single time. So Ben, tell me a little bit more about Quip. I'm not sure why you're calling people idiots. I think it's a it's a toothbrush for every human citizen who wants the best brushing experience. Look, up to 90% of us don't brush for a full two minutes or we just don't clean evenly. Quip doesn't require a clunky charger and it runs for three months on a single charge. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. That's easy. That's affordable. What more could you ask for from a toothbrush? Three out of four of us use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective. But Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association, and it has thousands of verified five-star reviews. That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. If you get quip.com slash floor right now, you can get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash floor. Getquip.com slash floor. Go get Quip. Support your teeth. Support your gums. Support the podcast. Getquip.com slash floor. Let's dive back into it ben first with thomas he says hello my name is thomas i'm a 42 year old program director on a medium-sized radio station in vienna austria and for more than a year i've been a stellar member of the open floor globe as an austrian and a basketball enthusiast i have of course followed the career of our very own jakob pertl who i loved to see on the raptors and who is now thriving for the Spurs. Do you guys think the add-on in the Kawhi trade could become another gem in the crown of this stellar franchise? And Ben, I included this mostly just as a reminder of how many people around the world are watching the playoffs. I don't have any passionate takes one way or the other on Jakob Pertl, but I love that our guy Thomas is in Austria watching these this Spurs series to see the progress of Jakob Pertl. Especially because he's averaging five points and five rebounds this season. <laughs> like, that is devotion. <laughs> Way to it, go, it Thomas. Really I love it. There, there's nothing that puts a smile on my face like this. It also speaks to the Spurs monastery and their global reach, doesn't it? I mean, there's people like this in, in half the countries around the world because Popovich and their scouting department has just mined every last uh, you know possible basketball backwater to find talent. Hey, here's a quick yeah. question that I thought of. Who has a better chance to make the conference finals right now, the Spurs or the Raptors? 
And if the Spurs make the conference finals without Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors don't make the conference finals uh, with Kawhi Leonard, what does that say about Kawhi Leonard? Um, I don't really know if it says anything about Kawhi Leonard. I think it would say something about the Sixers in the second round uh, because Kawhi... I think the, the the better question about the Raptors is rooted in the supporting cast because I think Kawhi is phenomenal. <laughs> and like a, the Spurs making the conference finals would be more a commentary on the that side of the bracket in the West and how kind of pedestrian it is. Um, so that's kind of a boring answer, but I don't know if it says that much about either side. You don't think it says something about the way he approached his exit in San Antonio, what he was weighing as his motivating factors? That's uh, true. I mean, yeah. what what would San Antonio look like if they had Kawhi this year? You know what I mean? Like, where would they two-seed? Uh, mm. we, maybe we'd be excited for this Western Conference Finals matchup. I mean, the, the hypotheticals there are pretty interesting, and we've dismissed the Spurs uh, for a lot of this season, and I think you know that that was relatively fair by us. Uh, I'm still not all the way in on this group. They looked very impressive, uh, you know, in that game three at home, much like I expected. I mean, Denver going into that uh, building, you were just sort of waiting for the Ghost Spurs go, you know, crowd to catch up with them. Uh, yeah, but I just think the way they've played so far in the postseason, it you know shines a new light on that Kawhi decision it kind of does about the LeBron decision too frankly because I keep thinking like all the structure (laughs) and all of the organization uh that the Spurs are bringing to the table just like the high level of competence where you know exactly what you're going to get and they're going to be able to put guys like Derek White in position to succeed and LaMarcus is going to get his shots where he wants them they're going to play hard team defense they're not going to just check out on each other uh those were the things that I originally wanted LeBron to seek and he went yeah. the complete other direction with it, but you know it, it it brings that one back too. It's like both those guys arguably could have been in better situations had well, they looked at I, San Antonio. I agree with that, and I, well, actually, I don't know. I don't know if LeBron in that Spurs system would have worked as well as we think or hope Why? because he would ruin it. Of, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. I think he he at this point in his career plays one way. He's great at it. But I don't know how much he would be willing to adapt in San Antonio. The guy I wonder about is Kevin Durant. Because if he really wanted to sell the idea of himself as this basketball lifer, basketball purist, and turned around and spurned the Knicks and went to San Antonio this summer, that would be unbelievable. 35 Ventures is opening up in uh, Central Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Right next to Tim Duncan's auto shop. It would be awesome. Um, But... Uh, that would be the greatest thing that would ever happen. God, I can't. I'm like my my mind just exploded as you were going down. That uh, look, I'm telling you, wherever KD goes next, even if it's the Knicks, even if it's the Nets or the Clippers or whatever, I'm so excited to stand for him for the next couple of years, so that he can kind of get back to where he belongs. Because people should appreciate he's one of the 15 best players of all time. Probably the smoothest scorer I've ever seen in my life, and uh, I want him to go somewhere where he can really shine and thrive. Um, but that's not going to be San Antonio. In real life, though, we should talk about Derek White. Nathan says, if you guys can spend 45 minutes talking about Zion Williamson, I think it's only fair to Man. hear from Ben about the state of the monastery 
following the most recent performance in Game 3 from one Derek White. At this point, is he the fourth or fifth best player in the show during these early rounds? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, Nathan, stop sideswiping Zion Williamson. What did he ever do to you? Come on. <laughs> this guy's the future of the sport. Um, in all seriousness, you know how I feel about judging guys on their best day or their worst day, right? We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't overreact. Um, that was clearly game three, Derek White's best day. I mean, he was incredible. Well, he tortured Jamal. He was Jamal. awesome in game one too, though. He was. Uh, I think there's a few things going on. I just don't think, I mean, elevating him to the fourth best player in the Western Conference is my point. Like, let's <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> let's pump the brakes slightly on that. There's a couple things going on. First of all, uh, you've pointed out Murray's defensive deficiencies in the past. I mean, he's getting worked in one-on-one situations uh, pretty regularly. I-, I thought that was an issue uh, in Game Three. I, you know, people like Gary Harris as a defender, but when I look at like the Nuggets one-two-three uh, spots, you know, the perimeter defensive spots, lack of size, lack of length, lack of sort of imposing. Uh, characteristics, it's a real weakness for them, right? And so I, mm-hmm. that's why I never took them seriously as like a Golden State uh, threat. Um, they just don't have the bodies, you know, the size, the presence um, to disrupt people, to, you know, pound them, whatever you want to call it, right? Second of all, we saw some happy feet, some uh, stumps on skates from Jokic in game three. There's no question about it. And that's sort of where Derek White's at his best, right? No, it's true. I mean, like you get him out there on the perimeter, you know, White starts to dance. He's very um, quick with his crossovers, quick with his moves. And, you know, if it's not there, he gives the ball up. He he plays kind of one-on-one within the system, if that makes sense. But he's licking his lips when he gets Jokic out there guarding him. And then the other issue is when he does attack the basket on Murray, Jokic is not like the most athletic and quick and nimble and above the rim shot blocker. So like coming from the weak side to discourage his layups or his drives, like Jokic isn't really physically equipped to do that. And San Antonio gets that, you know, they need to be shoving the ball right down the, the heart of, you know, uh, Denver's defense and they're doing it and that's why White's having so much success I don't really know what the adjustment is from you know Denver's side because the guys they're playing are the guys they have to play so yeah I guess they hope that you know White has an off night from outside or they're able to at least like control his penetration a little bit better or something else but uh, I think he is the beneficiary of a you know very friendly matchup circumstances I agree with that to a point. I think it is underselling how impressive he's been on defense. Um, I mean, he because he's a big reason Jamal Murray is struggling. Is is Derek White harassing him wherever Jamal Murray yeah, goes? But that's what we knew, right? Like we knew San Antonio. I mean, usually when push comes to shove, they're going to have a strong defense, and I think people were throwing him into the all defensive conversation. So we kind of understood yeah. that's the player who he was. What we didn't expect was like 35-point eruptions in the playoffs where he's like turning a series and, and people are trying to crown him. I guess that was my point. Yeah, and it's it's pretty cool for the Spurs. I really like watching the Spurs team play, um, and I am really curious to see what they'll look like with DeJounte Murray healthy next year. So I don't know. I think I, I, I think at this point, if you ask me, of those four teams on that softer side of the West bracket, who do you like to make the conference finals? I probably would take the Spurs, which is kind of scary to say out loud, given some of the guys they have to play. Uh, but how does the ju- how does the general public respond to that series? If we get Warriors Spurs in the Western <laughs> Conference Finals, but no Kawhi, right? So the headline oh. is like Lamarcus Aldridge versus Kevin Durant, and the Warriors. I think they swept them last year in the first round, right? Yeah. 
So yeah, no. Well, Look, you're, how, you're, how, do, how do people respond there, Andrew? I'm just asking the question. That's all. Yep. Well, it's a fair question, and your worries about ratings are also well founded, and um, I think may become more relevant as the playoffs unfold here. Because I don't know, if like a Spurs Warriors conference finals is probably not gonna do gangbusters ratings, but um, it is cool. Derek White has been awesome. I think he's from Colorado too. He went to Colorado. And, um, well, his backstory is interesting, right? Like this whole, like yeah. he, he wanted, he was going to a school that had like a cooking program and like he was basically nobody and is overlooked year after year. Um, the blog boy, Jackson Frank had a nice profile. People can go check that out if they want the full story on Derek White's background. Yeah, I, I would like to check that out because I actually don't know much about him. Um, well, it's like it's what like he's done this season. Nine thousand words, so set aside a couple hours, but you're <laughs> you're going to get everything you need from this piece. There we go. Um, on the other side of that series, Alex says, "What an amazing addition of Andrew Sharp reports earlier this week." So at the beginning of this season, Sharp reports that Jamal Murray is soft, and then he says he sucks in the clutch and will never be a good player. He's an awful defender and Devin Booker Park 2. The Nuggets have to trade him this summer if they have any chance of ever winning a series in the next 10 years. This may have been the best edition of Andrew Sharp reports there has ever been. See what I mean? Very, very, very clear. Bill Barr. This is is the Bill Barr scenario that I'm saying. (laughs) I did not say any of that. Um, I have alluded to some of that. At various points Wait over the last two years. Hold on a second. Didn't you call him soft, though, and somebody like tagged him on Twitter about it and became a whole yeah, thing? Yeah, see, it's, it's funny. I did actually call him soft in one of our podcasts over the summer, which hopefully no one have ever actually listened to because they were mostly gibberish. And then I immediately retracted it because I don't want to be... I think it, it's a good thing that sports media isn't in a place where we're calling guys soft anymore. Um, I did sometimes... I like. I question his toughness at times. Wow. Um, what introspection from you. It's incredible. Well, I know. I think it's a, just a, it's a healthier place for all of us to be. Jamal Murray, I was blown away by the toughness, the mental toughness he showed to come back in that fourth quarter. Um, it's one of the coolest things that has happened so far in the playoffs. Uh, and I still have a lot of the same concerns I had when we did the podcast at the beginning of the week is like, he's been this streaky player since his year at Kentucky. And, um, I hope he can kind of figure out a way to be a little bit more consistent. And when I say the Nuggets should think about trading him, I'm not saying they should trade him, but I think they should investigate it this summer in part because right now, Part of his value is still rooted in the mystery of what he can be and the upside that he has that is undeniable. In two or three years, if the Nuggets still don't have enough, some of that mystery won't be there, and that will kind of affect the way his value is seen around the league, and they will also have had to pay him by that point. And so it's going to be a very different conversation, whereas right now, if you were to get out in front of it and find the right trade partner— there may be a solution that works for the Nuggets that is is worth considering, and um, and also Jamal Murray could go somewhere else and be a star. Like that's possible too. Yeah, look, I mean the fourth quarter was incredible, making what eight straight shots. But if you miss your first eight shots, okay, like let's keep the context even within the game. I thought the most impressive part about that game too, 
Uh, you mentioned his mental toughness. I also thought just the faith from Michael Malone was really impressive in that situation. I mean, their season's in, on the line in Game 2. If they go down 2-0 and they're headed on the road for Game 3, they're basically toast, right? So that was when mm-hmm. all of the BS that coaches you know, uh, show their players all season long, the deference, you know, the, the pecking order type stuff. That was the moment where all that stuff goes by the wayside, and you just have to play your best guys, whoever is going to be able to extend your season. And Malone had a really nice, you know, extended explanation after the game about why he thought it was so important for Murray to be in there, why he trusted them uh, in that situation, why he wasn't going to go away from him, uh, given the stakes and everything else. I mean, it was exactly what any player would want to hear, especially any young player in that situation. And I do think. It was an example of why this playoff run, more than being like a real serious run, is kind of that building block experience for the Nuggets, right? Like, I think it will pay off for the Nuggets and for Murray individually two, three, four years down the line, not only getting his you know feet wet here for the first time in the postseason, struggling at times, playing well at other times, but also understanding exactly where he stands with his coach and with the organization and the kind of priority that he is. It sounds corny. It it sounds like, oh, you know, kind of a made up thing, but that psychological element's a big deal. And, you know, guys need to feel like they belong, that they're established, um, you know, in in that kind of a, uh, you know, framework of the postseason. And I think he was able to do that. And he responded in a big way. And the faith was, you know, fully repaid uh, by Murray. uh, and, And I think, it was, you know, almost like a win for their whole postseason. Like, even if they go out in six, and I keep spinning this positively for them, I think the reps and, yeah. and having uh, that success under your belt uh, for Murray is good for him long-term, even if the questions about the consistency or the streakiness or the defense or some of these other things are going to persist. Yeah, uh, and, and look, I think it was cool for Murray to remind people of, who he can be and like that upside is a real thing and it's why deciding about his future and whether he fits in denver is terrifying (laughs) because like he could absolutely be a star who takes over games in the playoffs and um and i think that look 95 percent chance he ends up back in denver in which case everything you just said about that moment and that particular sequence is dead on. It's something that's going to stick with them over the next few years as they kind of figure this all, all out together. Um, and that's valuable. The other thing I would say is like, I was sitting there watching game two being like, man, Mike Malone, what are you doing? Every time Monte Morris and Malik Beasley are on the floor, you guys make a run and you keep going back to Jamal Murray this is hard for me to watch as a completely objective observer, but it was cool to see it pay off from Malone in the end. So it, again, it was like one of the one of the wilder ninety minutes we've seen in the playoffs so far. So I enjoyed it. And speaking of responses, Ben, let's move to the 76ers uh, with an email from Nicholas who says. I'm sitting back enjoying the view as Ben Simmons tears these nets to shreds with 31 points on 84% shooting without Joel Embiid. Andrew, you have a bias for low-efficient chuckers like Booker and Ingram who can't run an offense, can't even qualify for the G League defensive third team, don't have the pressure of winning championships now, and don't have a rotating door of teammates. 
it's pathetic and then continues on with more personal attacks i think it crescendoed with him comparing you to lebron and me to kyrie oh my god actually live with um (laughs) i take that as a compliment but um as far as Ben Simmons, well, uh, it, look, in his I said de- in the middle of hold our on, though, rant, real quick. In his defense, <laughs> he did issue a long apology to you. Uh, so I, yes, and I appreciated it. I appreciated. There was there was probably it, but, some substances involved here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't blame him. Sixers fan feeling good after that win, uh, after a kind of an emotional first week of the playoffs for Philly. This has been kind of wild. I did not see Simmons responding as much as he did, as impressively as he did. That game was awesome. No, and look, as soon as I found you out... You were on the edge of your couch, like, what? so excited for him to fail before that game started. I mean, you you, you ordered in a special <laughs> meal. I mean, you were ready to just uh, toast to his weaknesses. As soon as you saw the Embiid injury report, I'm sure you were just like running around your your living room with your arms raised like yes this is going to be the downfall but it didn't play out that way Andrew I'm happy for Simmons I'm happy for you big night for the Benz of the world um I could nitpick some of what he did as far as who he's who's doing it to and like whether it's Trevion Graham or Damari Carroll or Jared Dudley but I honestly think that's kind of missing the point like the key for Simmons is effort and intensity and the way he's used. And I think effort and intensity have been kind of off the charts for him in game two and game three. He was attacking offensively from the very beginning. He was getting to the rim. And uh, and the part of what's valuable about him getting to the rim is that when he does that, his passing becomes more than just kickouts for three. Like he's finding guys for wide open layups. And, and I think that's a big difference for Philly. And then on defense, he's been just as valuable, just sort of switching everything, harassing D'Angelo Russell. He's just been everywhere, and that's who he can be on that end, and that's not who he has been for long stretches of this season. But he deserves a lot of credit for taking all kinds of heat and coming back with two of the best games probably of his NBA career. Yeah, I don't want to you know bend over backwards giving him that much credit. I mean, it is the Nets. I think your point about who he was going against is dead on. I mean, they're not good. I keep saying that. And so I would say, you know, it was good for him, but like, you know, big picture wasn't that impressive. I thought my bigger takeaway was a little bit different. You saw the power of what he looks like when there's not a seven foot three guy with tendonitis in his way all the time, right? And I think it goes back to the mm-hmm. the point that I was making earlier about how great is this pairing between the two of them? Are you ever going to be able to get that version of Ben Simmons night in and night out if Joel Embiid's on the court? Do they really complement each other or do they start to get in each other's way a little bit? I think it's a completely fair question. People used to say the same thing about Westbrook and Durant. Uh, I didn't usually you know dive into that uh, pool in particular because I didn't envision a situation where like Westbrook would be better off without Durant right like I could see a situation back then where Durant would be much better suited with a more traditional style point guard where he's getting even more touches and not watching you know Westbrook make some of these crazy decisions late in games like I could see why them splitting up would make sense for Durant but I did not see why it would make sense for Westbrook and so I usually thought from the Thunder standpoint like hey keep this thing together that's probably your best uh your best bet but I think both players, you know, there's an argument that they would be better off just kind of with teams completely constructed around them and that, you know, when to get peak Simmons, 
uh, you basically have to have Embiid on the sidelines. I'm not sure how you're ever going to get that same level of performance. And maybe it won't matter. Maybe they're able mm-hmm. to make some slight sacrifices and go deep in the postseason. Uh, but I'm still skeptical of that. But you know, at the same time, uh, it's better to see him you know, look like the best player on the court, which is what he should be uh, if Embiid's not out there. I mean, there's nobody on Brooklyn, especially D'Angelo Russell, who should even be in this conversation with a guy like Ben Simmons. I mean, that's where his talent level, his ability, his physical tools, and all that stuff is. I mean, he should be going through there hanging on the rim for minutes of each game. I mean, that's just how it should go. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, I also like that Philly is using him as the screener in pick and rolls now, which is something I advocated for the day they traded for Jimmy Butler. I wrote a column the next day saying, all right, now to make this work, Simmons has to become Philly's Draymond Green, where you set screens with him, hit him on the roll, and then he finds guys going to the hoop. And I think that's still his best role. And this idea that he's a point guard and he's Magic Johnson is where he gets into trouble. Um, But when he's just in the half-court offense causing havoc for everybody— he can do a lot of damage because he is really skilled and he's good at finishing around the rim and his vision is great. And um, so I hope that's kind of where things trend, whether Embiid is out there or not over the but next doesn't few that years. Matter? That's the way they should be using uh, But Simmons. isn't that a problem if you have Embiid in the paint and so you're trying to have Simmons you know, roll into the yeah, paint and Embiid's is. right there? Unless he can show that he's like a knockdown three-point shooter so that you can have Embiid spaced out to the corner when you do those things, you're going to run into the congestion. It's not going to look as pretty as it did when uh, you know, things opened up a little bit. I just don't think those things are coincidences, right? Like, I think you can start to use the, mm-hmm. you can use Simmons in those situations and have a ton of success, uh, you know, because, you know, some of the, uh, the size that MB brings to the table just wasn't there in game three. Yeah, well, and also, I mean, the game opened up for Tobias Harris as well, and he was awesome in game three and looked like a completely different player with a little bit more space to operate and Simmons operating in space and then finding Tobias Harris with good looks. And then, like, once you get him rolling, the Sixers' offense opens up because there's another shooter, and it's not just J.J. Redick running around 25 screens looking to get a clean look. And, like, Tobias Harris can be that guy for them and he hasn't been and so that's another really important factor for the Sixers if they ever want to go anywhere real um we'll have to see where it all ends up I'm not gonna how long how long can Simmons kind of subjugate himself in this situation that's my question I'm sure they can make through the playoffs sure whatever but like going forward big picture like we know this kind of stuff is there it's only going to get tapped if he's the main guy all the time, right? If he has his own team, that's the only time he's going to be able to reach his full potential. How long is he going to be willing to be uh, the number two guy? I think it's a fair question. I, I, I'm actually curious, like one year, two years, like how long do you think he's going to stick with this program before he's just had enough? Yeah, well, and I also think it's a little bit unfortunate the way all this has played out in Philadelphia because... I don't know if there would have been pressure to make it work now had they not gone all in and treated this season as if it was like the middle of a title window and they had to go go win as much as possible as soon as possible. Because I think watching Simmons and Embiid together may have been a really different experience had we given them a couple more years together to try to figure things out. But as it is now, the stakes are so high that there's going to be 
crazy levels of scrutiny on both of them, no matter what happens. And um, I don't know if it had to be this way, but look, given all that, Simmons has responded and has been really impressive and clearly listened to our podcast and said, I need to go out and beat the shit out of Brooklyn. And he did exactly that. So credit to him. And um, hey, what was up with Jared the Dudley? Other though? Thing I, I mean, say, what'd you think about that? Like, well, I was going to say Jared Dudley was spot on <laughs> and I think he's taken a lot of heat for basically just answering the question. Honestly, when they asked about Simmons in transition, he's amazing. And in half court, he's kind of average. I, I don't really see where the problem is there. I mean, he was right on the merits. I think most people would agree there. But was he right to say it, you know, setting his team up to get punked in game three like that? I mean, I don't know. Like, for his role on that team, I understand he's the vet. Like, he's sort of, you know, the the glue guy or everything else. If I'm their young players like Levert and Russell, I mean, seriously, <laughs> if you're one of those guys, you're looking over at Jared just being like, dude, shut up. <laughs> like, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah, I would actually, I would look over at him and say, you know what, dude, this is not a podcast in late July. Let's tone yeah, it down. We're not road tripping. You know? just, <laughs> exactly. You're not retired yet. You're not in studio. Um, yeah, that's very fair. And the Nets in general, I don't want to take anything away from how impressive the Sixers were in game three, because they do deserve a lot of credit. Um, and so Sixers fans who have been writing in angrily, <laughs> like they looked awesome. Um, the Nets were shockingly disorganized and, uh, the execution was sloppy all game long. They didn't really take advantage of no is MB. Po- is that a point guard problem? I think, you think? Like, well, I don't, <laughs> I actually don't think it's necessarily a point because D'Angelo Russell, all the criticisms are fair in terms of his shot selection, but he's actually like a, a pretty nifty creator. Um, but they just didn't really have a plan beyond like running D'Angelo Russell into the lane, running Spencer Dinwiddie into the lane. Karis LeVert right. was awesome for the third when straight you, game. When you he's say great. he's a nifty uh, creator, is it a creator of missed jump shots for himself or for passes to his teammates? Because I'm looking at the line that says 26 points on 12 for 26 shooting, three assists and three turnovers. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's like no, a stereotype. I, I think if you're... <laughs> No, no, no. It it is. He definitely lived up to your parody of D'Angelo Russell in Game Three. I think that if you're comparing him to the other guards Brooklyn has, he's the best creator, and he's the guy who's most likely to get other guys' wide open looks. But nobody was knocking them down, and there are some structural issues with this Nets team where you're like, wow. So you guys are like really counting on Damari Carroll to be your shooter. And uh, that's probably not a great idea. And Joe Harris has disappeared in this series, which is not great for Brooklyn. Um, So I I don't know. I I expected a better, tougher Nets team in game three than what we got. I didn't um, (laughs) because of who (laughs) Russell is. I I didn't even mention he was minus 22. Um, I actually think what you said about his playmaking is true. He's shown some some playmaking flashes this season that I didn't think he had previously. I mean, I know he came in with that uh, reputation as being like both a passer and a scorer. Um, I think some of it got lost in LA. It did come back a little bit this season, but I'm not seeing it uh, in the playoffs. And I don't know, man. Uh, it's a pretty rough watch. Like you're doing a really good job of giving Simmons his credit, so you don't have to be honest here about Russell's playing. But uh, that was. I mean, he, he got scuffed. Well, like that's the biggest look. game of their season. He comes out and does that. 
Yeah, well, we'll see where the series goes from here. I'm not going to concede too much to Philly, but we did get a uh, Twitter comment from Ryan who said, please have a Sixers disaster, sky is falling, crisis podcast in every round this playoffs. Thank you. So... Well, if there's nothing only gonna, else, that's what we're There's going to be one ben. more, right? I mean, they're not going to be Toronto. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I don't know. If they do make it out of the first round to play Toronto, I think that's an interesting matchup because I don't totally trust either one of those teams. Um, but we shall see. On that note, we'll see who we can jinx next week, ben. You know what we should do? We and, should come uh, back in the Eastern Conference Finals when it, you know, it's Milwaukee, Toronto, Philly's not even in it, and do another Philly podcast just to satisfy that guy. <laughs> That's what we should do. We do it again during the finals. We could meet up somewhere, probably, uh, you know, the Bay Area or Milwaukee and just talk about how Philly ruined everything. Good times, Andrew. Our email address is openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Keep all those heater takes coming. I'm sure, you know, you want to dress me down. You want to dress Andrew down. You may get so wrapped up in it, you have to issue an apology 24 hours later. Look, we're used to it, guys. We love all the feedback, positive, negative, and otherwise. Check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page. Scroll down. There's a section that says rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. Andrew, we're also on the world-famous radio.com slash open floor. Uh, Until next week, I will talk to you. All right, man. Take it easy.